0: Take charge of your thoughts. Take charge of your life. Psychologist, author, speaker, musician, former professor, and the host of Love & Life, Dr. Karen Anderson Abrel. Welcome to Love & Life. I'm Dr. Karen Anderson Abrel. A few weeks ago, in episode 173, I talked with naturopath Dr. Diana Lipford about, well, about all the things over the last couple years. And of course, it was a topic that is a hot topic. It's the hot topic of the last two years. The pandemic, the therapeutics, and also the vaccines, the lockdowns, the mandates, there's just been so Much, The pandemic has touched every area of our lives. It's almost impossible not to talk about it when you gather with people. I know sometimes we say, let's not talk about it. And it always comes back to the pandemic. Why? Because like I said, it's touched every aspect of our lives. And it's certainly touched our relationships, our friendships. It's entered the dating scene. People don't want to date someone who is unvaccinated. Others want to date someone who is unvaccinated. It's certainly affected parenting in terms of the fights at schools about masking children or not masking children. And in certain states, the mandates now to vaccinate children, it's impossible to get away from this. And as a psychologist and someone who focuses on relationships, it's deeply troubled me. It's deeply troubling to see relationships torn apart, friends and family members, being uninvited to events or blocked on social media. And it's something I never thought I would see. And I know you never thought you would see something like this either or experience it. And as I mentioned in the last episode, episode 173, we've never been through a global pandemic and it would be impossible for us to fully be able to anticipate how we would respond and react and how others would respond and react And how that might put such a massive barrier between people who we know and love and respect their intellect and their reasoning. And yet we go, oh my gosh, how in the world do I see it this way and he sees it that way? The divide is massive. So I thought it might be helpful to share a little bit about cognitive psychology Usually I'm talking about the cognitive behavioral therapeutic techniques that we use to take charge of our thoughts, take charge of our life. But I thought today I'd explain some of my personal reasoning because some of you guys were like, yay, thank you for speaking to this. Others were not so thrilled with me speaking about this issue and my stance. And so I want to share a little bit more about my reasoning. But more importantly, in discussing the ways that humans make sense of our world. And that's what we do every day all day. In discussing how we make sense of our world in light of the pandemic, I think it will help us all perhaps understand and I hope have a little more empathy for others who don't see these times through the same lens and hence are coming to the conversations from completely different vantage points. So I'd like to focus on three factors at work. And of course, they're just three of many factors that play into how each of us has perceived the last two years, tried to make sense of it, and come to our positions surrounding all these very contentious topics. And yes, they're just three of many variables at work, but three very important ones And they're actually things we talk about on Love and Life all the time. And the element we'll talk about in today's episode is our beliefs. We all entered 2020 with a set of beliefs that framed how we experienced, how we saw, and how we processed everything we've gone through over the last two years. The second one, which we'll discuss in next week's bonus episode, is fear. Because fear played a huge role and continues to play a huge role in how we are moving through this time. And the third one is values. And that's something we talk about all the time as well, our values, how we responded to everything we've endured has so much to do with our values. And those values have come to light in ways that we probably didn't expect Which of course leads us back to the foundation for this conversation, which is relationships. And some of the problems we may be experiencing with our relationships may be around these three elements, our beliefs, the way we manage fear and our values. So before we do a deep dive into each of these elements, I'd like to share a little bit about my personal journey because research shows that as much as we love talking about theory and data, we typically resonate most with someone's own personal story. In March of 2020, I had no idea what to think about any of this. So like all of us, I stayed at home, wore gloves and a mask when I had to go out, watched the news, and did my part to flatten the curve. I despaired as New York got shellacked. And then I felt hopeful as two Navy ships sailed to the rescue and a tent hospital was set up by Samaritan's Purse in Central Park. And of course, I saw the cases and death counts mount. We all did. And also... We all viewed this landscape through the prism of our pre-existing beliefs, as I spoke to a moment ago. So personally, my thought was, let me assess this threat to my family and myself and figure out what, if anything, we can do to protect ourselves. Now, I didn't have to dig too far to recognize that the vast majority of people recovered from COVID. The statistics showed that even my 85-year-old mother had a 95% chance of recovering from COVID should she contract it. So that being said, if 95% of grandmas will recover, I started thinking to myself, do these lockdowns make sense? As a psychologist, I was concerned about the mental health ramifications of lockdowns. Lockdowns cause unemployment, which cause hopelessness and despair. I was worried that suicide rates would escalate. What about domestic and child abuse, drug addictions? And did the death rate for children warrant school closures? The research I kept coming across showed that kids didn't contract the virus, or if they did, they weren't symptomatic and they weren't vectors of transmission, meaning they weren't going to take it home and give it to grandma. So I started wondering, is anyone going to challenge the response here? Is this the only way to go? I assumed everyone in charge was doing the absolute best they could, but I didn't see a lot of action being taken. It seemed like people would get COVID, they'd stay at home until it was so bad they had to go to the hospital, then they're put on a ventilator, and oftentimes they died. And I just kept wondering, are there any doctors who are trying to do something other than wait until you have to go to the hospital approach? So I started digging around and quickly learned that second opinions weren't permitted in the pandemic landscape. Why? Growing up, I'd always heard that it was a wise idea to get a second opinion from a doctor or a third opinion or a fourth opinion. Furthermore, I didn't like some of the rhetoric I was hearing. As a social scientist, I understood that a phrase like follow the science made sense only if we meant follow the science as it unfolds. But if we're talking about follow the science and what it dictates, well, that's a contradiction in terms. Legit scientific practice is all about questioning, challenging, and debating. It's common for a paper to be published by one lab, and then another lab publishes a paper taking issue with the first lab's interpretations of their findings. They'll examine the data, the sample they use, their methodology, and they'll refute it and combat it and publish a paper with a rebuttal. As Dr. Lipford noted in episode 173, science is never settled. It is always to be questioned. In March, April, and May of 2020, I wondered are any of the experts going to question anything? It was frustrating for me, and I am a questioner, so I started to do some digging. I dug around and found that yes, some doctors were questioning. They were forming coalitions like America's Frontline Doctors and Frontline COVID-19 Critical Care Alliance. And according to their papers and books, these doctors were curing COVID patients by trying known drugs with established safety profiles that had been around for years. They were curing patients and then getting fired for doing so. Some of you will say, "Uh uh-huh, yep, they got fired and they should have gotten fired. Because you'll go to Wikipedia and you'll see that these coalitions have been discredited by the FDA and the WHO. But the problem for me is, I don't blindly trust the FDA. And tying this back to the element we're discussing here, it's because of the beliefs I've acquired over the years. Of observing the relationships between big government agencies and big corporations. And oftentimes there are conflicts of interest. Furthermore, we've all heard of FDA-approved drugs that have then later been recalled because, oops, uh, that drug isn't so safe after all. On average, the FDA recalls 4,500 drugs per year. Recalls. 4,500. So their seal of approval clearly can be removed and should be when more information comes to light. And as for the WHO... After the United States, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is the second biggest donor. Well, what's their agenda? Do they have one? I don't know, but I want to know, considering they're funding the WHO. Are their donations to the WHO purely altruistic? I didn't know. But I had heard Bill Gates was big on vaccines. Might there be a conflict of interest here? Meaning... If the WHO is getting so much money from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and the Gates Foundation really wants to roll out a vaccine to treat COVID-19, then doctors who are using other methods, therapeutics that have been used for other conditions, other viruses, well, then there would be motivation to discredit these doctors. In addition, if we want to fast track this vaccine, it's going to have to be used under an emergency use authorization. And we can't get an emergency use authorization unless there are no known therapeutics that can treat the virus. So doctors who were trying known therapeutics, therapeutics like hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, which, by the way, won the Nobel Prize in 2015 and is considered by the WHO on its own list of essential medicines. It's as safe or more safe than aspirin. Yet when Joe Rogan used it, the FDA comes out with A really cringy meme. Don't take horse paste. Come on, y'all, or something along those lines. Well, ivermectin has cured river blindness in portions of Africa. And furthermore, you can give your cat antibiotics if the cat has a tooth infection, and people take antibiotics. So for me, none of this was tracking. So as a questioner, I kept questioning as long as these therapeutics were available with incredible safety profiles an emergency use authorization could not be implemented. And might that derail the Gates Foundation and WHO's plans for a vaccine rollout? Can we at least ask that question? Entertain the possibility? I grew up in the 70s. I was a little girl and I remember the teenagers, they were hippies, they were rebels. They wore t-shirts that read, don't trust anyone over 30 and question authority. What happened to that energy? It felt to me like no one was questioning authority and no one was using their critical thinking skills. Well, I, for one, wanted to hear what the other side had to say. So I did some more digging. I was curious as to what these doctors, these doctors who'd been banned and censored and who'd lost their jobs, maybe they were quacks. Maybe their practices were reckless and dangerous, but how would I know if I didn't hear what they had to say so I could decide for myself? Okay, so that was just the beginning of the pandemic and my initial thoughts and concerns and questions and I'm sure you resonate with that because we were all in this space of what is actually happening here. Let's use that as a touchstone as we now consider how the person we are and the beliefs we hold impacted the way that we moved through the last two years. So let's start with the first factor to consider, our beliefs. We all stepped into March of 2020 with preconceptions about the way that we understand our world. And this is where Cognitive Psych offers us so much regarding what we're experiencing externally, how it interacts with our internal beliefs and assumptions. And what we find is that we are not passive. We carry with us to every scenario in which we step and which we encounter, we carry with us our preconceived beliefs and assumptions. And we project these onto what we are experiencing and witnessing. So if we think about it, as all of us walking into March of 2020, it's this room, it's unknown territory none of us is equipped or prepared to understand what's actually going on. And we're all bringing with us into that room, into that situation, we're bringing with us a unique vantage point that is the culmination of all our prior experiences and our assumptions about the world and the way it operates. And so we step into that room, carrying that with us, and someone else may step into that room carrying an entirely different set of beliefs and assumptions. Now, we know this because when we interact with people, we go, huh, that's interesting that they would see it that way. And if we see things differently, we usually can just leave it at that. But when it comes to a global pandemic, the stakes are higher, the fear is heightened, and people see it as a matter of life and death. And so, if someone has a different vantage point, it feels very threatening to us personally, to our family to society, to the world as we know it. So what we may not always fully realize, we're all projecting onto this pandemic our assumptions and beliefs while simultaneously processing the information in real time. And psychologists have found that, as I mentioned, we don't do this passively. In fact, there's this construct called the confirmation bias, which states that we actively seek out and attend to, we pay attention to information in our environment that substantiates our previously held beliefs and assumptions. So a quick basic example, say I'm an ageist and I believe that anyone who's over 80 should not be on the road because elderly people can't drive right, okay? So I could be on a road trip, I may encounter 25 cars with people who look like they're 80 plus driving, And let's say 24 of them drive perfectly normally, just like anyone else on the road. But there's the one person, one out of 25, who happens to drive too slowly in the fast lane. That is the exact car that I will remember and go home and tell my friends about. Because I'll dismiss, not even pay attention to the 24 that don't confirm my bias, that don't substantiate my viewpoint And I'll pay attention to, notice, and remember, and tell the story about the one that does in fact confirm my bias. We do that all the time in a million different domains, and we certainly did that when we stepped into March of 2020. So all the beliefs we held before played a role and continue to play a role in how we interpret and respond to everything going on around us. The virus, the masks, the media, the government, Operation Warp Speed, mandates, all of it. I'm going to share some of the beliefs that I held and continue to hold. And as I do so, I invite you to think about some of your pre-existing beliefs and assumptions that you brought with you when you stepped into 2020 and how that might have informed your interpretation and response to the last two years. As I examine my own response, it obviously goes back to my beliefs about big pharma, which for those of you who've been listening to the podcast for a while, it's it's something I touched on even in the very first year of Love and Life. And I'll talk a little bit about how I arrived at my professional opinion about big pharmaceutical corporations and their impact on psychology and psychotherapy. But it's also useful to know which I shared in episode 173, that thanks to my father, my liberal Democrat, college professor father, I was taught to always question big entities in society, big, powerful, money-making entities. And my father was particularly critical of big pharma. So even before I got my master's in clinical psych, I was primed to be questioning, to think, hmm, Is that drug really all that amazing for psychological well-being? Or is that going to make Eli Lilly a ton of money? And maybe both are true. Maybe they're going to make a lot of money and they're going to help a lot of people. But let's at least question. Let's at least consider economic factors at play. So we start with a little girl who has a father who teaches her to challenge and question everything. And then when I was just a young professional... Prozac drops. It's really hard to overstate the hype surrounding what was touted as a miracle drug. Prozac is here to eradicate depression as we know it. As a young clinician, I got caught up in the excitement. I went to seminars and trainings about these life-changing SSRIs, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. I poured through research papers and I bought books. One that everyone was reading at the time was called Listening to Prozac. It sang Prozac's praises. Thanks to SSRIs, therapists now had a powerful new tool to combat clinical depression. I read the book, took it all in, and then because I'm my father's daughter and I had been taught to always question the motives, especially when there's big money involved, I read another book. It was a response to listening to Prozac called Talking Back to Prozac, What Doctors Aren't Telling You About Today's Most Controversial Drug by psychiatrist, Dr. Peter Bregan. You know how when you have some thoughts, but they're just musings and you really haven't solidified them. And you wonder, does anyone else think this way? And certainly... As a young therapist, I was thinking, does anyone who has way more experience than me do any of these experts, these titans in the field? Is anyone thinking the way I am? Well, Dr. Bregan was and is. And over the years, i found that Dr. Bregan was not the only one, and in fact, I've had the honor of interviewing other experts, other psychiatrists and psychologists who also challenge and are critical of Big Pharma's capture of psychotherapy, namely Dr. Alan Francis in episode 22, Dr. Leonard Sachs in episodes 33 and 34, and Dr. Stephen C. Hayes in episode 122 they all speak to their concerns surrounding the influence of big pharma on psychotherapy. But getting back to the here and now, I share all this to acknowledge that these long held perceptions naturally played a part in how I've understood the world since March of 2020. And the same is true for all of us. Some of you have the opposite view of pharmaceutical corporations and the medical establishment. Maybe you work in the field, or you have family members who do. Perhaps you're on medication yourself and you firmly believe in its effectiveness. You trust the FDA, CDC, and NIH. You see no reason not to. For you, a statement like, just get vaccinated, makes perfect sense. It's a no-brainer. You don't get what all the fuss is about. So we're viewing the pandemic landscape from very different Vantage points. And admittedly, we're both going to operate from our biases, and we will seek to confirm our biases. We're likely to attend to and remember information that aligns with those beliefs we currently hold. So for me, when I read a substack questioning the vaccine's safety and efficacy, or when I come across an article reminding us that in 2009, Pfizer paid out $2.3 billion in a settlement for fraudulent marketing, the largest healthcare fraud settlement in history, in fact. Or when I come across a video sharing the stories of those injured by the COVID 19 jab, I'm prone to notice this information and remember it because it confirms my position. But I recognize that for those of you who feel very confident about the healthcare industry and you feel strongly that the vaccine is a miraculous gift to society, you're going to attend to other information that confirms your beliefs. So where does this leave us? Where does this leave you with your friends who see the world so differently right now? With your family members who think you're nuts for holding the position you do about all these concerns, it's really dicey and painful to feel this division. And I know I've felt it, and I'm sure you have too, this gap between you and people you love so dearly that wasn't there before. So as we wrap up this discussion of beliefs and the confirmation bias at work, I'd like to share an anecdote, a personal story that may be helpful for you when you're having conversations with your friends and family. I was speaking with a friend who is very pro COVID shot and very pro how the government has rolled out the response to the pandemic. And we were going back and forth because obviously I'm not pro either of those things. And I was citing some sources and she was citing her sources and her sources were the CDC and the FDA, which don't mean much to me. They don't hold much water at this point. And my sources meant nothing to her. (laughs) She believed that they were incorrect and had been debunked. And so she said to me, you know, we just trust different sources. And when she said that, it really helped me. I thought, you know what? There's really no convincing each other here. Because I'm looking to sources that I believe are valid. She's looking to sources that she believes are valid. And we're not going to make any headway. So just that one statement, you know, we trust different sources, diffused the energy and helped us just go, okay, we're going to have to agree to disagree. And both of us prefer to maintain our friendship than to let our different viewpoints get in the way. But It's also interesting, and I shared that with another friend when we were going back and forth, and I shared that same statement. You know, we trust different sources. And I had hoped it would have the same effect on the conversation, that we could just go, all right, looks like we're not making any headway here. Let's probably just table this, respect one another, knowing that she trusts information I don't trust, and I trust information she doesn't trust. But sadly, it had the exact opposite effect. She was very unhappy with that response from me, which made me feel bad because I thought, oh, when my friend told me that it really did help diffuse things. But when I told someone else that it didn't. So we're dealing with different personalities and different people and every relationship has its unique dynamics. So when we share all this, I know that it's not necessarily going to be a panacea and adhering to some of this is going to magically smooth all the waters of every friendship. So I do recognize that. And one final point that I will say when dealing with people's trust of sources, another element that we don't have time to talk about today, but I may address to some degree in upcoming episodes is the censorship that's gone on where doctors with incredible credentials have been silenced because they are challenging the CDC and the FDA, censoring doctors who have every right to speak up based on their enormous amount of expertise and experience in their field. What that does for someone like me is makes me distrust what's coming from the government even more. And I know that I'm not alone in that. So the only way we get out of our confirmation bias is to allow multiple experts speak and let everyone listen to all the arguments and come to their own conclusions but that was not permitted in the pandemic. And I believe it's related to the next element that we'll talk about next time, which is fear. The love and life hack for this week is, my, oh my, if we ever needed a great example for the validity of the confirmation bias, we have it. So as we're talking with friends and loved ones, let's remember the biases that we all possess, and the beliefs that we held and hold, and how those beliefs influenced our perceptions, experience, and response to everything we have gone through since March of 2020. Thank you, as always, for listening and for being a part of the Love and Life family. I do hope a bit of psychology will help you navigate your relationships through these very dicey waters. Take charge of your thoughts. Take charge of your life. This is Dr. Karen Anderson-Abril. And until next time, make it a great week. Love and Life is produced by Tim May and hosts and executive producer, Dr. Karen Anderson-Abril.